Okay, go ahead and open up to Judges. Judges chapter 10. I'm actually going to read part of 11, just a little bit, a snippet. Hopefully you had an opportunity to, to look it over this week. Uh, I already had a couple of comments. What in the world's going on here in this text? So That's a good question, the book of Judges. It keeps coming up. Judges chapter 11, verse 29. These are the words of God. Now the Spirit of Yahweh came upon Jephthah, so that he passed through Gilead and Manasseh. Then he passed through Mitzpah of Gilead, and from Mitzpah of Gilead he went on to the sons of Ammon. Then Jephthah made a vow to Yahweh and said, If you will indeed give the sons of Ammon to, into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be Yahweh's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the sons of Ammon and to fight against them, and Yahweh gave them into his hands, in his, in, into his hand. And he struck them with a great slaughter, from Aurora to the entrance of Minith, twenty cities, as far as Abel Keramim. So the sons of Ammon, Ammon were subdued before the sons of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his house at Mitzpah, and behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. Now she was his one and only child, besides her he had no son or daughter. So it happened that when he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you are among those who trouble me. But I have opened my mouth to vow to Yahweh, and I cannot take it back. So she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to vow to Yahweh. Do to me according to what has gone out from your mouth, since Yahweh has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. Then she said to her father, This thing be done for me. Let me alone two months, that I may go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity, I and my companions. Then he said, Go. So he sent her away for two months, and she went with her companions and wept on the mountains because of her virginity. And it happened at the end of the two months that she returned to her father, and he did to her according to the vow which she had made, and she did not know a man. Thus it became the custom, a custom in Israel that the daughter of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in a year. Let's pray. Our Father and God, you are the God of all grace and mercy, and your judgments are pure, right, and good. We have gathered this evening as your people. Some of us are tired and worn out. Others are energized and full. Father, would you sort us out, as we prayed earlier, afflicting the comfortable and comforting the afflicted. Our desire is to look at your word of guidance so that we might be changed, renewed, and refreshed. So would your spirit aid us and make us more like Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, I want to start tonight by reminding you that there are 12 judges emphasized in the book of Judges, 12 total that are mentioned, and uh, probably they're there to reference the 12 tribes of Israel. So there's kind of significance to that. The 12 symbolizes the unity of the covenant community. That is, as a community, they are unified by the covenant. However, it also means that they are disunited by covenantal apostasy. So they come together as one in the name of God, and then when they sin, they are disunited. They are separated because of their uh, apostasy. The same covenant that unites them with blessings also has a sword of judgment 
that tears them asunder for their disobedience. Samuel is probably our author, and his main concern is to explain to the troubled monarchy of his day what has led to the problems in the monarchy. Problems don't just happen. Um, America's current predicament, for example, didn't just fall out of nowhere. The 12 judges uh, and all of their tribal associations are as follows, just to help you refresh what we've covered so far. Othniel, he is a Kenizzite by virtue of Caleb's family, and he is associated with the tribe of Judah by being grafted into the tribe of Judah. So he's not a quote-unquote pure-blood Judaite. He is a Kenizzite, but he was brought in uh, thanks to Caleb. The second judge was Ehud. He's a Benjaminite. You may remember that story of Ehud. We also have Shamgar. Shamgar was one verse, not a lot said about him. He was a Canaanite convert. We also had Deborah. <clears throat> we also had Deborah and Barak and Jael, and she was probably from Nephtali like Barak, or she was an Ephraimite. We don't know exactly. Gideon, Gideon was from the tribe of Manasseh. And then we got to learn tonight a little bit about these other judges. Tola was from Issachar. Jair was probably from Manasseh. Jephthah, who's the main character this evening, he's a Gileadite from the tribe of Manasseh. Uh, Ibzan is from the tribe of Zebulun. Uh, Elon, the tribe of Zebulun. And Abdon, the tribe of Ephraim. That's 11. So the 12th is the more famous one that everybody remembers, and that's Samson. He was from the tribe of Dan. So, conspicuously absent was anyone from the tribe of Judah. No one from the tribe of Judah. Othniel was the closest. But Judah is where true kings come from. True kings come from the line of Judah. Genesis 49.10 reads, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That's a promise made all the way back in the book of Genesis. So Israel would still be waiting for the lion from the tribe of Judah to come, the one who would take away the sins of the world. So Saul, and even really David, couldn't, couldn't fill those shoes. The judges, as well as the future kings, would not be able to deliver, at least not like King Jesus, who is son of David and Lord of David. Now, tonight's text is rather peculiar, and it's not without much debate. At the center of this is Judges 11.27, and it says that God, Yahweh, is the judge. Yahweh is the judge. That's the first time that this is mentioned. Yahweh is the real judge. He is the Shaphat in Hebrew the administer of justice and rule. He is the lawgiver. He's the avenger. Uh, he is the one who punishes evildoers. It is Yahweh, the ultimate transcendent judge, who vindicates, he prosecutes, and he governs the affairs of man. So that's the confession in Judges eleven twenty-seven. Right smack dab in the middle of Jephthah's story, I might add, is that confession, and it's there for a reason. Now, Samuel, the writer, clearly emphasizes this for us, and it was central to Jephthah's ministry as a deliverer. He knew where he stood, contrary to what people assumed about him. So let's look at our text again. We have a lot to cover, 
but we're going to summarize and work through it, and we're going to look closely tonight at the issue of idolatry, repentance, some of those things, and what God intends to do with us and the world, as this story exemplifies. Now, as we work through the passage, I want to I begin just with a couple of observations. First, there in chapter 10, verses 1 through 5, we have what we call minor judges, and we also have at the end of chapter 12, verses 8 through 15, these are the minor judges. Very little is said about them. There's little to no significance about them other than one, they help round out the 12. So there's a narrative point that Samuel's making. But two, they give us a slight indication to the spiritual climate of Israel as it pertained to monarchical aspirations. Remember the problem in 1 Samuel is they want a king like the rest of the nations. The, des the desire to have a king rule them like the other nations in 1 Samuel 8 started decades beforehand. There was this urge to want to have this centralized bureaucracy and kingdom. So it all started in the book of Judges. So coming off the heels of Gideon and then Abimelech, apparently kingdom fervor took over many of the later judges. For example, in chapter 10, Tola judged 23 years. This is verse 1. Tola judged 23 years and was probably a righteous judge. He wasn't looking to establish his own monarchy. Jair, though, lived like a king, amassing wives, children, and donkeys, it says. <laughs> a judge, yes, but probably compromised to some degree. Uh, he was looking for a dynasty. But then skip to chapter 12, verses 8 through 15. And we get three more judges. And again, little is said about them. Um, Ibzan, or Ibzan, judges for seven years, but we're told that his family structure was being set up so as to maximize his rulership. So he's a judge, no doubt, but he's looking to establish himself as a king. Next is Elan, a simple man who judged for 10 years and then he died, probably a righteous man. After that, we have Abdon, the 11th judge in the book, who ruled for eight years, but he had 40 sons and 30 grandsons, which means he was an older man. Uh, you don't have 30 children in eight years, or 40, I should say. Now, he, like some of the others, were polygamists who saw a monarchy. So multiplication of wives equals multiplication of children equals multiplica multiplication of foreign dominance which equals everlasting dynasty. That's how you read judges when they talk about their wives and children. That's why. That's what they're attempting to do. So some judges were better than others. The bad ones seemed to desire statist rulership in their lives, which, again, First and Second Samuel teases that out um, a little bit as well. Now, part of the point here is to put Jephthah, that story, sandwiched in between these other, other judges. You have just a list of a few with very little commentary, and then you have Jephthah right in smack dab in the middle, and he gets a whole chapter. Uh, he gets a whole section of, 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 uh, of attention, so to speak. Now, what it tells us is that this period of judges was marked by inexorable compromise. Even the judges themselves deteriorated in faithfulness. So <laughs> the question is, who does Israel need to be rescued from? That's the question that's underneath the book of Judges. Who does Israel ultimately need to be rescued from? And the answer is what? Themselves. <laughs> right? That's the point. Their, their imminence philosophy doesn't work. I'll explain that later. Now, again, it's a longer section. I'm going to summarize again. 
assuming you've read beforehand. We learn in chapter 10, this is what Annabelle read, 6 through 18, that Israel had sinned again. Go figure, we expect it. Israel sinned again, turning from Yahweh to serve other idols. There are seven gods that are listed from seven different nations here, and that indicates a perfect completion of iniquity. In other words, they're sinning really well. They're sinning really well. And because of this, the Philistines and the Ammonites come in, Ammonites from the east, Philistines from the southwest. They come in and they oppress Israel for 18 years. The people cry out in supplication. However, the Lord rebukes them in response. He had delivered them from seven other nations, indicating perfect deliverance to match their total iniquity. He, the question is here, <laughs> he has fulfilled his obligations. Why haven't they? You've sinned this many times perfectly, and I've delivered you this many times. I've done my job. I've done my part. And Yahweh, in verse 13, don't miss this, in chapter 11, or excuse me, chapter 10, verse 13, Yahweh says, Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods, therefore I will no longer save you. That can rub you the wrong way. To add insult to injury, Yahweh says in verse 14, Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them save you in your time of distress. <laughs> okay. Fascinating. In other words, don't cry out to me. I've helped you repeatedly. Cry out to the gods you keep throwing yourselves at. Go ahead. Let them save you. Do you really expect those worthless idols to really save you? If you want them to lord over you, then let them lord over you. Go ahead. Remember, sort of like a, you know, when you're teaching a dog how to make sure that they don't go to the bathroom in the house a certain way, uh, what do people do? Well, you might rub their face in it. <laughs> Yahweh is rubbing this in their face. You want these lords and gods, then take them, have them, let them deliver you. Now remember, the, the, the rest, to rescue someone is to rule someone in God's economy. He rescued them out of Sinai or out of Egypt and took them to Sinai, gave them his covenant. To rescue is to rule. That's the, that's the paradigm. To rescue is to rule. He had rescued. He was ruling them, but they wanted a different rulership. So Yahweh says to them, go for it. You want the idol? Go for it. Let them lord it over you and see how that goes. And it's shocking, isn't it, this text? It's like, God, God is such a God of grace. Well, he is a God of grace, no doubt. But he's also a God who does not tolerate sin and idolatry. So go for it. That's what he says. This threat of covenantal divorce will now grab their turgid, arrogant attention. Finally. You want the idols to rescue you? Then go ahead, let them rescue you. We'll see how it goes. What is God doing here? What is God doing here? He's showing Israel that their greatest problem isn't a foreign army. And the greatest problem isn't even the foreign gods, which are ultimately powerless in comparison to God. The greatest obstacle, listen, the greatest obstacle to consistent covenant obedience is themselves. Their own delinquencies and their misconduct. That's it. The greatest problem. Same goes for us, right? The greatest problem isn't this person or that person. It's us. Our thinking the way we perceive something, the way we assume, the way we view we are right in this situation, or whatever, whatever sin, we think this sin is more advantageous to us, you know, those types of things. Whatever it is, 
Our problem is us. That's the greatest issue. And that's why I always say, <laughs> uh, pardon my language, but don't blame Satan for your own stupidity. A lot of people will, will do that. Oh, that's Satan. He, he got me that time. No, you're just dumb. <laughs> okay? That was on you. That was your sin. You were acting foolish. Don't blame anybody else. And Israel repents in this text. They promise to serve only God, and they essentially say in verse 15, we'll do what you have to do, do with us, but we'll serve you. We promise. So that's kind of what leads up to Jephthah's story. That's what's going on in Israel. What do they do next? Well, they determine to crown someone king. Not your best move when you're trying to let Yahweh be king over you. Yeah, but we still need a king. So they're determined to crown someone king, whoever that is, someone that will save them from the Ammonites who are positioning themselves again for victory over Israel. The Gileadites, which is, they had descended from the tribe of Manasseh, remember that. If you look in your map, they resided in the eastern side of the Jordan River near the, near the uh, kind of in between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea in the south. That's where the Gilead land was. So they, re they resided there. And they were neighbors to the Ammonites. You can see them, I'm not sure if they're listed specifically, but kind of southeast from, from Gilead. That's where the Ammonites were from. And this is where we meet Jephthah. Jephthah is also, like Gideon, called a mighty man of valor. And he, in verse 1, is the son of a harlot. Interesting. Jephthah, just like Abimelech, was a half-breed. Part Jewish, or part Hebrew, and part Canaanite. He was a half-breed. Uh, but unlike Abimelech, he wasn't seeking his own glory. Uh, remember Abimelech from last week. Uh, Jephthah was despised. He was rejected by men. He was sent out without an inheritance because his mother was of a woman of ill repute. That's Jephthah's story. And consequently, he flees, he finds some friends, and he, he lives his life. But the irony of ironies happens next. He's rejected by the Gileadites, but what do they do? The very men who sent him away went looking for him because the Ammonites were on their front porch, and they were terrified about it, and they want Jephthah to come and save them. The man that they rejected, Jephthah essentially says, well, you cast me away, but now you want me to govern over you? Isn't that hilarious? So the elders of Gilead put him in charge. Now, a side note. The relationship of Israel to Yahweh right before this story of Jephthah is exemplified in Gilead's relationship to Jephthah. Which is to say, when Israel finds themselves facing disaster, what do they do? Well, they finally cry out to Yahweh, right? It's like deathbed confession. I'll live my whole life in, in, in atheism and hating you, God, right? And, and then on your deathbed, oh, well, I guess I better get my act together because I'm about to meet the very God who I claim to hate. So the, when the elders of Gilead find themselves facing, to, facing disaster, they cry out to Jephthah, the man that they cast away. Israel casted Yahweh away, but then when it gets really bad, they want him back. Do you see the connection? So both of them cry out because the situation is dire, not because they've shown themselves to be faithful to the very one that they've cried out to. Yahweh and Jephthah both know that they're being used as a means to an end, and this is based on prior experience. That's why God, just before that, had said, you want the idol? Take it. Because I know what you're doing. You're manipulating me. Now, Jephthah is put in charge, and his first act is a peaceful resolution. He wants peace between the Ammonites and the Israelites. So he sends a delegation to Ammon, the sons of Ammon, 
in order to rectify the situation. And what was their problem? What was the beef between them anyway? Well, the Ammonites believed that Israel had stolen land from them. That's their issue. They had stolen some land. And what was the solution? Well, in order to avoid war, Jephthah explains the 300-year history of how Israel didn't steal any of their land, but in fact it was given to them by Yahweh. We have a land border dispute. That's what made this war start. They had defeated the Amorites. Yes, that was under the leadership of Moses. They defeated the Amorites, but what do the Ammonites have to complain about? This has nothing to do with them. The statesman, Jephthah, did his job correctly. He even appealed to their false deity, Chemosh, and, and, uh, but that was to no avail. Jephthah appeals to Yahweh the judge, but war is inevitable. He can't placate them. He doesn't know how to keep them away, so war is inevitable. The king of the Ammonites wouldn't listen. And he skipped down to verse 29 of chapter 11. We're told that the spirit of Yahweh came upon Jephthah. This is an important note. Make sure you understand that this is a man who is filled with the Holy Spirit. The spirit of Yahweh came upon Jephthah. And it's an important piece of information that will invariably help us with what comes next. Just keep in mind that he's been a faithful man despite being rejected, and the Spirit is upon him. And what comes next is the so-called rash vow. Okay, uh, It is a rash vow, but we need to take a, look, a closer look. Jephthah vowed that if he can win the war, that he will give whatever comes out of his door to greet him after he returns from victory, he would offer it up as a burnt offering. Now, if you don't know Leviticus, you will assume that Yahweh gave him the victory, which he did, and after his daughter, his one and only child, came out of the door to greet him, and she did, if you don't know Leviticus, you will assume that Jephthah offered her as a burnt sacrifice. Which, according to God's law, human sacrifice is an abomination. It's toevah in Hebrew. It's an utter abomination. It's just one of the things that's unthinkable. You just don't do it. Now, if you just read the story like that without knowing Leviticus, you're going to assume he vowed to give a burnt offering to whoever came out or whatever came out. Maybe he thought it was an animal or uh, that would come. No, you're going to make some wrong assumptions about the text. I'll explain in a second what really went on here, but for now, the rest of the chapter is key as well. In verse 35, he tore his clothes in agony because it was his one and only child. She, in obedience, believes that his, her father, Jephthah, must uphold the vow. This is a woman of faith. You made a vow, Dad, you got to keep it. And that's, she's righteous, verse 36. But there's one caveat. She goes up to the mountains with her friends to, quote, this is verse 37, weep because of my virginity. Look at verse 39 through 40. And it happened at the end of two months that she returned to her father, and he did not know her, or he did to her according to the vow which she had made, and she did not know a man. Thus it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. The key is this she did not know a man. That's the key. She did not know a man, she was not sacrificed. The, the focus of the text is her virginity and celibacy. That's what's em emphasized several times. What's going on? Well, J James Jordan has persuaded me to think differently about the passage, so I'm going to build on his argument. But I will say that most commentators, if you read any commentator, that most of them believe that she was put to death. 
that that was the vow that he had made and she was to be a burnt sacrifice. And I believe that this is very, very mistaken. And let me explain why. Leviticus 1 outlines the burnt offering protocol. Leviticus is one of those books that, like, that's when your Bible reading plan ends. A lot of people die in the land of Leviticus. They just, they, Genesis, Exodus, great. And then it's like, Leviticus, I give up. That's usually what happens. But Leviticus is very, 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 very important to understanding the gospel and to understand really the rest of the Old Testament. But the burnt offering protocol does not have or involve human sacrifice. God does not condone human sacrifice. He does not believe it's an acceptable form of worship. The burnt offering, when you sinned and you offered up a burnt offering at the tabernacle or the temple later on, that represents the consecration of the person making the sacrifice in dedication to serving the Lord. The animal dies, you do not die. You partake of the sacrifice and you receive the benefits of the sacrifice which incidentally is also what communion in the Lord's Supper represents, but that's for, for later. We are, according to Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, to present our bodies, what? As a living sacrifice, right? Acceptable to the Lord. That's what Leviticus 1 teaches. Paul didn't just make that up. Everyone from Adam all the way to the end of time was to offer up their body as a living sacrifice, in service and dedication to the Lord. Now, Leviticus 27 is the last chapter in Leviticus, and that actually is key to understanding Jephthah's vow as well. So here God enumerates what to do when a man makes a difficult vow. When he makes a, That's literally the language of Leviticus 27. I think it's in verse 2. When a man makes a difficult vow, he is to redeem a servant out of his household for temple service via payment. So, in his mind, in Jephthah's mind, when he's making this vow, he thought, he expected a servant to come out and greet him, and all he would be out was one servant and 50 shekels of silver, according to Leviticus 27. That's why he made the vow. He would give the servant over to the Lord, and he would pay 50 shekels of silver to the temple, or the tabernacle at this, at this point. That's, that's what he assumed would happen. So putting it differently, his daughter was the firstborn, she was the only born of him, the firstborn, and the firstborn in the Bible is always consecrated to the Lord. Remember the Passover celebration. If you didn't have the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of your home, your firstborn died. Firstborns are consecrated to the Lord. And so she came out to greet him, which meant that he would have to give her to the Lord in permanent service to him. Something that happened to Samuel as well. Don't forget, Hannah gave him over to the Lord. He grew up in the temple. So there's a connection here. But this was a vow of service per Leviticus 27, and women did serve at the doors of the tabernacle and later the temple. They were perpetual virgins. They were not allowed to get married. They were not allowed to know another man, and they were to remain that way forever. So the problem, the vow was a problem, but it wasn't a problem because she needed to die. And the reason Jephthah is sad and tears his clothes in agony is very, very simple. He has no future offspring. None. His line is cut short. It's done. 
His line dies with him. There was no one to carry on the family name, no one to carry on the dynasty. She mourns the fact that she will never have children. That's why she goes with her friends to lament in the mountains, and that's why that became a popular thing, to remember that. And he mourns because he's not going to have any grandbabies. Now, Jordan notes that back when the golden calf incident took place, uh, God substituted the Levites for them, meaning that the firstborns were not to die because of the idol, but in fact, they were instead substituted by the Levites. The Levites would then serve in the temple. So there's a lot of these Old, Te Old Testament connections here. Jephthah's daughter is just like that situation. It's the exact same thing. Now, chapter 12 reminds us of the Gideon story, and it involves Ephraim again. This is the last part of the Jephthah story. They, Ephraim, the Ephraimites, they missed out on the battle, and that's because they were cowards, but of course, after the battle, they are ready to fight, okay? You know, it's the guy who shows up late to, to move the refrigerator. Oh, I was totally going to help, but I guess I don't have to lift anything heavy. That's what the Ephraimites were like. They wanted to know, they came to him basically screaming at him, why didn't you bring us into this fight with the Ammonites? What's your deal? They are so angered that they want to kill Jephthah. They threaten to kill him. They want war. So Gilead, under the leadership of Jephthah, goes to war. And the Bible says that 42,000 Ephraimites died. He just beat the Ammonites, just had to deal with his daughter being sent away to the temple with no children, no future. Ephraim comes and screams at him. They have war. Just to give you insight, only 32,000 came into the land. 42,000 died. So obviously they procreated and had more numbers, but that's a significant chunk of one tribe of Israel. 42,000, they were nearly wiped out. God had brought judgment. The battle took place on the eastern side of the Jordan, and so that anyone who would come across the Jordan back west they would run this, this test. They would issue this verbal test. They would say, hey, say Shibboleth. Say Shibboleth. Can you, can you say that? Can you pronounce it? If they say Shibboleth, guess what? They're an Ephraimite, and they were to be put to death, and they would die. Sort of like soda and pop, but it's actually more like, you know, people in the south and the people in the north with their accent, accents. Say y'all, you all, you're dead. You know, you are not from here. Clearly, you can't say it. That's kind of what it was like. So that, that, that was kind of a fun, Shibboleth is a, is, a great, is a great name. It just simply means like grain of corn or something. It really is a meaningless word, but they could tell who an Ephraimite was. And when an Ephraimite came to the border crossing, say Shibboleth, Shibboleth, and you're dead. <laughs> Talk about border crossing and control. So Jephthah, he judged for six years and he died, and that's the last of his story. So the question is, what do we make of a passage like this? This is where it gets fun, at least for me. Um, the problem of idolatry is the thread that weaves together the entire book. The problem of idolatry. Judges is a constant story of constant turmoil. When will Israel learn to trust Yahweh the judge? When will they get their act together, right? You just wonder, you read the text, and then you stop and think, when am I going to get my act together? There's that question too. When will the people of God learn that God's ways are always better than the ways of idols? That's the big question. When will people wake up and realize that? 
And one of the things we see here in this passage early on is the interconnected relationship between idolatry and slavery. This theme keeps popping up over and over again. Idolatry always, every time, leads to slavery. Yes, but think of it in the reverse because the reverse is true. Slavery always leads to further idolatry. That is, you can guarantee that the false worship of a false idol will enslave you to it. You've given it power over you, and it will enslave you to it. But once you're enslaved to it, we can be very, very tempted to think that more idolatry equals more freedom. That's why Yahweh says, look, you you want those gods? Go ahead, cry out to them. You think they have power? Go ahead, let's see what power they have. So if you're enslaved, wouldn't you hate that idol? When you're in sin to some idol in your life, you would think, like, from the outside, you, you would hate that idol. I don't care if it's obsession with money or yourself, whatever it is, you would think that you would hate that idol. But it's not always the case, is it? It's not always the case. Think of it this way. Um, Christians still think today that the public schools, which are led by humanists and continue to feed the idol of statism, they really do think that they're a legitimate option for their children. We have an idol problem, and we we think the idol is going to do something productive. You may have talked to family members about that before, but in an effort to live for Christ, we too can be tempted to think that the idol will rescue us. We think. We think we're self-sufficient. I can handle this situation. I have the power to deal with this, when in fact you don't. And that's really what God said to Israel. You want the rule and reign of the idol? Then... Trust in their rescue and see for yourselves. Now, Romans 1 teaches us the true nature of sin. The Apostle Paul declares that when God gives judgment, he gives judgment by giving us over to our desires. We usually think of this cataclysmic stuff, but it's really not. God just gives people over to their desires. Woe to the man who does not consider his desires. Would you desire the good things of God? Then know what they are and pursue them with your life. Sin, we know, entangles and ensnares. Its barnacles encompass all around you. It grabs you and holds you tight. If we will not consider the true nature of sin and learn to deal with it, we too will find ourselves in the same position of Israel. Furthermore, that sin, which we believe to be freedom, is actually tyranny. If we are not careful, we'll think that the idol really does have power to deliver us. Self-sufficiency, that can be one of the foremost issues. This deception, of course, will make us think that we're building a house when instead we're actually building our own prison. Listen, who you cry out to and what you do about that deliverance tells us everything we need to know about your religious convictions. When things get hard, who do you cry out to? Who do you cry out to? If you're crying out because you feel bad for the consequences of your sin, then you're not, you haven't really repented. We're sorry for the sin itself and not just for the mess we've created. We're sorry for the idolatrous motives of the heart and not just asking for a quick fix behavior fix, right? That's the difference between true repentance. Uh, Worldly sorrow doesn't lead you to to true repentance with, with God. It doesn't work that way. Repentance requires a deep, oftentimes very emotional regret 
for having offended the God whose image you bear. Real repentance, it accepts God's chastisement in your life, no matter the cost, while please, uh, pleading to the Lord of mercy. That's real repentance. Real repentance is not surfacy. It's deep. It goes deep in the heart. God is not a means to some other end. He's not a means to some other end. He is, in fact, the end of all goodness, the end of all pleasure, the end of all grace. You can tell that you're viewing God a certain way by how you treat Him. Is He the end you're after? Or is He a means to an end? See, at the end of, our, end of the day, our, when, when we think of repentance in your, your own life and we think of all these things, at the end of the day, our sincerity isn't the litmus test. There are a lot of sincere atheists. There are a lot of sincere Muslims. Sincerity is not the litmus test either for anything. It's God's compassion that ultimately brings healing. And we see this in this text also, the nature of deliverance. Gilead's last-minute desire to call on Jephthah to assist them with the Ammonites is exactly how Israel had treated Yahweh. Just a last-minute God get us through it. And what do we learn? Well, there's no rescue and deliverance without the total lordship of Christ over all of your life. So many people want the benefits of Christ, the forgiveness of sins, but they don't want his lordship over them. They don't want him in control of how they view money and business and economics. They don't, they don't want any control over how they parent or how they, how they you know, do their job. They just want the forgiveness of Christ. They don't want all that other stuff that comes with it. There is an interlacement between rescue and rule, between deliverance and dominion. Since Yahweh is king, only he delivers. Since he delivers, he gets to rule. You want his deliverance, you better get ready for his dominion over your life. There is no having the salvation of Christ without the dominion of Christ. And again, we forget about this today. The church has largely forgotten. We forget that our current cultural, any, it doesn't even have to be current, but our cultural conditions are predicated on our religious convictions. Cultural conditions in the world are predicated on religious condi conditions. So our current culture, think of this, look at this. In this same week, we crowned a man the winner of the swimming championship while the president proudly nominated a woman to the Supreme Court, a, a woman who can't define what a woman is. Like the same week. You think, what is going on? This madness. Well, our religious conditions are poor. That's what's going on. That's what's going on. When the church exercises faith, true faith, godly dominion and faith, the nations are subdued by the gospel. Oftentimes, all we simply need to do is believe in the power of the Holy Spirit and then get to work. And it's that simple. And we can win the nation for Christ. We could. But it requires that conviction. When the church exercises unbelief, the church is subdued by the nations. And this is because of the biblical principle of image and idol. You become like that which you worship. You become like that which you worship. If you can't look back on your life and see real tangible sanctification where you're becoming more like Christ, then maybe you're being shaped into an idol. The image of the wrong God. 
And that's what Judges tells us all the time. If you worship the gods of the foreigners, you will become like the foreigners. You worship the god of self, you will develop your own category for what selfhood looks like. And you will start to justify everything away. See, we need to be delivered out of the rut of idolatry, which is what Jesus does for his people. We must cry out to the very one that we cast out. You see the connection with Jesus and Jephthah? They cast him out, but they need him to save him. We need to cry out to the one that we cast out. That's what we did to Jesus. We despised him like the Gileadites had despised Jephthah. We abrasively cast him out, accusing him of the very sins that we were committing. He's a drunk. He's a blasphemer. Let's kill him. Let's put him on a cross. And yet, they're the drunks and they're the blasphemers. And that's us. And yet, we... Here we stand, a testimony to God's unrelenting grace. In fact, Jesus goes even further. He rescues us, no doubt, but he also gives us an inheritance. The meek shall inherit the earth. Jesus Christ cleanses the world of unrighteousness, and he gives it to his people. Jephthah wanted an inheritance but didn't get it. Jesus had everything. He set it all aside to have nothing in order to give us everything. What a treasure! <laughs> what a treasure! Another important consideration that ties into this is the problem of the Ephraimites. Don't be like them, working against God's plans. Internal strife in the covenant community is pervasive in Judges. Internal covenant community, stuff from within the covenant community, and it's pervasive all over, and it is inevitable when we take our eyes off the kingdom. Listen, Please hear me carefully, because this strikes deep. When, when genuine spirituality and holiness is absent in a local church, the tongues of men and women begin to burn the place down. When we take our eyes off the kingdom, when we take our eyes off our responsibility of holiness before Christ and image-bearing before Christ, when we take our eyes off that, what do we do? We just nitpick each other to death. And people, I mean, I've seen... My pastor growing up would always tell this story, but he was a part of a church that split because of a water heater. You heard of church splits over colors of carpet. and It's like, I mean, we're not going to put neon carpet in. It's not even our church building, but neon pink or something like that. No, but when we stop judging ourselves first, which is what Jesus said to do, we find ourselves judging others with a different standard or this grace for me but not for thee sort of thing. And this particular form of idolatry is abhorrent and destructive. And that's what Ephraim, this battle, signifies for us. And at the end of the day, idolatry is, is simply man's attempt at trying to direct, trying to control, trying to manipulate transcendence, that which is out there transcendence is inescapable we all know that there's a lot going on out there than what's just going on in our own heads right we know there are things happening in the world we know that there are things taking place outside even this building but idolatry is always something out there in that it is something or someone that we find more tolerable someone more manageable than the triune god the truly transcendent triune god who demands everything from us that's why idols are tempting, because they don't demand everything. We get to control what we give to them. And that, when God demands everything, it's including his children in the future, as Jephthah found out. 
He demands everything. Parents, God demands your kids to teach them, to raise them, give them a Christian education and insight so they can go and be the warriors that they have been called to be. And and the issue today, I mentioned this earlier, is our perpetuation of what's called imminence philosophy. I'll explain that. It largely underscores contemporary thinking. thinking. This goes back to Immanuel Kant, the famous philosopher. He argued that that we must reason and think and postulate these things autonomously without any religious presuppositions. You go to a college campus, that's what they're doing right now. They want to reason apart from God. They think it's possible. The knowledge that we possess is only validated imminently inside of us. Okay, so think of the ginormous man who won the women's competition. Okay, you, that is a suppression of truth on a level many of us thought unfathomable. But that's imminence philosophy. It's the truth is whatever is inside of me, what's imminent, what's present, what's here with me, not what's out, not the truth that comes from without, but from within. So we can't know anything else out there, nor can we prove anything out there, the transcendent realm. We can only know in our own self-consciousness. That's why relativism is the is the philosophy du jour. And thus, rationalist thinking is divorced from God. So when we try to separate the world from God, we fall into this philosophical trap, which means that we need to be rescued from the philosophical trap. So to try and say that there are some places in the world that do not belong to Christ is to manipulate the transcendent one and establish your own idolatrous imminence. And we're all swimming in that. No pun intended, but it is a good one. We're swimming in that right now. And it's man's claim to lordship, and it is sin. It is sin. So don't mess with the living God, friends. Don't tempt him. Do not test him. Do not trifle with him. Do not work against him. Do not contend with him. Do not belittle him. And certainly do not view his law word as being a tawdry and manipulatable item. If you try to make God safe on your own terms, my God would never do that. You're right, because your God doesn't exist. If you try to make God safe, you'll end up with a false God. And we, like Israel, need to be rescued from ourselves. That's the beauty of the gospel. So I'm going to end with a question. So think deeply. I'll repeat it twice. How would our lives change if we really and truly trusted that God has rescued us, that he has lovingly, that he is lovingly ruling over us in Christ, and that his covenantal blessings are there should we choose to obey him each day? I'll ask it again. How would our lives change? How would our lives change if we really and truly trusted that God has rescued us, that Jesus is lovingly ruling over us, and that his covenantal blessings are there for us to enjoy, to make productive, to expand, should we choose to obey him each and every day? How would your life look different? Let's pray. Father, we we submit our time to you today. In fact, this is really not even our time. Time is a gracious gift you've given us. And oftentimes we squander it, but Paul says in Ephesians we should redeem it. So Lord, would you help us to be diligent about pursuing you, about managing and tithing our time. We want to be 
present in your kingdom. We want the reality of Christ's rulership over us to be a truly living reality, something that we cling to and enjoy every single day. Lord, keep us from shelving you up on the bookshelf and trying to satiate an idol. Would your Holy Spirit break those idols And would he show us in our hearts and in our minds just how contemptible they really are? Father, we exist for your glory, so would you help us in that process? In Christ's name I pray, amen.